The object of art, the writer Alberto Giacometti once wrote, is not to reproduce reality, but to create a reality of the same intensity. Well, the reality is my guests on the program today have been doing that for nearly 40 years, and that intensity has never lessened. In fact, it remains as raw and vital and as urgent as ever. I'm Alex Green. Who are they, you're probably wondering. Well, you're about to find out. And this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. which features my guests today on the program, Rick Rizzo and Janet Bean. Let me tell you a little bit about 11th Dream Day, Rick Rizzo and Janet Bean. Well, fancy quotes aside, to put it quite simply, 11th Dream Day have never stopped being great. Since their self-titled 1987 EP, over the course of 13 albums, the Chicago band have retained the same scruffy splendor that has always made them one of the most riveting acts around. When I was in college, I always told my friends that the band sounded like a cross between X and R.E.M., but that was kind of an oversimplification on my part. It might even have been a bit lazy. The fact is, 11th Dream Day have a lot in common with the bands I mentioned, yeah, of course, but they're more than that. They're an arresting blend of muscle and heart, and even when the songs jangle, they still sting. The vulnerable numbers have frayed poetic finesse, and the faster ones, they rip away with ragged and battered beauty. Singer Rick Rizzo, to borrow an expression from Saul Bellow, is an open wound of a man, and drummer-singer Janet Bean is a revelation. She's sonorous and sorrowful, but she also blazes through each number with conviction and heart. Now, Bean, you might recognize from being one of the co-founders of Freakwater and bassist Doug McCombs, well, he plays in Tortoise. But when they all come together as 11th Dream Day, the sound is distinct, stirring, and always energizing. The band's new album is called Since Grazed, and it's a startling collection of thrilling indie rock bliss. Jagged, gripping, moving, and deeply inspiring, the album shows that 11th Dream Day remains as vital as ever. And this conversation was an absolute treat. I love these guys. Here's me and Janet Bean and Rick Rizzo of 11th Dream Day, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. 
was thinking about how people are like, oh, there's a surprise 11 Dream Day album. I'm like, well, it probably wasn't a surprise to those guys. No. <laughs> no, I no. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's a surprise that we're still making records in a sense. Oh. Although I like the idea of somebody surprising us and putting out a record, you know, of us. That, 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 that would be pr pretty cool. That would be great. Yeah, I think a surprise 11 Dream Day album that you didn't even know about is would mm -hmm. constitute yeah. a real surprise. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're always um, surprising ourselves. How is how is the creative process for you um, in the past year? Has it become more concentrated, or was it was it challenging to collaborate? Uh, well, it was extremely challenging to collaborate. Um, uh, the collaboration that we did this past year was mostly um, uh, dealing with uh, yeah. Well, but also. Uh, putting some finishing touches on the record. Um, Janet did some parts um, uh, later in the, in the game. And, uh, and then there was a lot of collaboration uh, over email uh, dealing with the mixes. Because um, um, our uh, Mark Greenberg, who uh, produced it and mixed it and is, the, uh, and is in the band, um, uh, did a lot of work. Um, on the record and then he would, uh, you know, it was the first time that we didn't mix it all together in a room together. Uh, mm. it, that was difficult, I'd, I'd have to say. Yeah, I think in the, in our creative process in the past has been learn the songs in the rehearsal space, get to the studio, get it done as fast as you can. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's all, you know, to save the money, whatever it is. And, um, you know, we would record uh, at, make a record in a matter of a day or two, and this one, while the you know the, the basics were were done before uh, shutdown, we did have this really well a year a year or so to sort of just sit on things and think about things, and so I think it allowed it it, it allowed us to make a very different record than we're used to making. I think that is true because we've had this great amount of time to think about things. Mark could go into the studio uh, whenever he was able to, you know, just work on it at, at, in his own time and then send us something back and we could think about it. So it was really much more of sort of like a listening process, I think, for us than, than our past records have been. We've never, we've never ever been a band that tinkered. <laughs> this, yeah. this, no. this record had lots of tinkering, which was kind of fun those albums like in, in your discography they're raw and they're urgent um and though you were tinkering i think that there's still the raw urgency is still there it's just totally it comes across through a different filter um I, yeah i i would agree with that um well, you know I, go ahead janet what were, no, i was gonna say our you know in between rick and i we sort of have a feral uh <laughs> process to how we <laughs> do things so i think that kind of keeps the uh, rawness alive always because you know i think we're always still sort of in a process of learning how to to do this thing that we've been doing for 37 years or something but go yeah, ahead i think um i think the reason why it sounds raw too is that the tracking was done with just me and an acoustic guitar playing the songs mm. um at the time that i was doing that we didn't realize it was going to be an 11th Dream Day record. And I just wanted to get um, a bunch of things that I'd been working on on tape 
and with good mics and um you know those tracks uh singing live playing live um that's how all 12 songs on the record started and um yeah. so you know that's that's why I think it sounds raw because that's that's about as raw as it gets. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're, I think actually that's right. We did start off um, sort of the trajectory of how it was working as Rick had all these songs and and he um, was sort of struggling. He brought them over to my house and we listened and I was I was not in the right headspace I guess to see how they were going to translate to the band at that time, but I liked them and and. Uh, he he was kind enough to say, well, would you help me sort of put these together in some way and gave me some maybe from the studio. So when we did that, the, the, we got to the studio and Rick is just doing it with the idea that it was going to be uh, a Rick Rizzo record for the purposes that, you know, it's so hard to wrangle all of us to be able to get together and play and, and Rick really wanted to get out there and play. And um, so this could be a, a vehicle for him to do that. And then I was sitting with Mark in the control room and Mark's like, this is an 11 Dream Day song. And then, and then like, this is an 11 Dream Day song. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I can hear this now. I can hear it in my head now that he's in the studio doing this. I think this all translates. So I remember him coming back into the room and saying, all right, you're, you're, here are the two options. You can make a Rick Rizzo record, which will be great. We'll all help you make that record. And you'll have the option to play all you want on your own and not be fettered by you know, a, a bunch of people that, that make chat, you know, make scheduling difficult or, and, and you'll probably sell, you'll sell records, but you may not sell as many if you make a love and dream day record, which we could do that. And you may have more challenges to play it in a, in a full form than it is, but you can still go out and play on your own if you want to do that. But then he was like, well, I always just wanted to make a love and dream day record. Of course, that's what I want to do. So that's how, that's how it went down. Like, all right, let's do that. And then we just sort of, started adding on to it. So it started really basic with just Rick and his acoustic guitar um, and his home recordings uh, and sort of adding on to that also. And uh, so that I think that is the rawness exactly like you said. Yeah, and Rick, you were totally amenable to it being an 11th Room Day album when you realized like, oh yeah, this is morphing into something I hadn't realized. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just, really really happy that this is the way it worked out because it's what i wanted all along and we're talking about a process of about four years here yeah of of when i started writing some of these and um and i had listened to them so many times and wanted to do something um but i you know for a long time with this band we used to on our first records um you'll see that the songwriting is really really spread out um and then it seemed like once we got rolling, um, I, I kind of took over a little more. Although all the way through the all the up until the last Atlantic record, I think every it was like Janet would have three or four songs on a record. Um, you know, Beat and Lift to Tell both are almost half Janet songs. Mm. Um, but but uh, as time went on, you know, Freakwater was starting, and Janet had Freakwater, and Doug was uh, involved in Tortoise. This is the early '90s, and and um, you know, so I think a lot of their creative space was going to those projects. And by that time, Eleventh Dream Day, uh, I I had decided not to pursue the band, not not to make it a a vocation and make it more of a hobby. And I went back to school to get a, a teaching degree. Um, and so you know, I took over more of the writing, but 
every time, you know, when I bring songs in, I'm always so nervous. Like, is everybody going to like these? And I play them at home and I like, you know, I, I really want to do this song. And what the band always does is transform them um, and make them so great. And, um, and, you know, Doug and Janet forever have been in, uh, in the band and we've always just been able to work that way where um, it's just really natural. Nobody says, hey, play this, try this, try this. No, it's just whatever comes out. And that's our chemistry, the three of us. And then you add on Mark and Jim uh, Elkington to that, um, who are both just phenomenal musicians. Mark um, played in the Cocktails. That was his band for years. And, um, and Jim does solo work and, and plays with so many great people, Richard Thompson and Jeff Tweedy and Steve Gunn. And, He's so talented, and, and so just everything that ended up on this record, if I had done a solo record, I was going to ask everybody to play on it anyway. I was going to make it sort of an 11th room day produced solo record, but that would have just been goofy. And so this end product, I wouldn't call it that at all. It's just an 11th dream day record, and the songs did transform and um, have everybody's personality stamped all over them, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. You know, if critical praise could be translated into money you guys would both be speaking from mansions with moats right like you you guys are, are a very loved critical band um but was it kind of a relief to decide this would not be the, the main vocation did it when you when you made that decision to go back to school and and say this is not going to be the primary this will be my secondary were you kind of relieved to have made that decision? Did it make the creative process easier for you because the psychic energy around the band, there's a kind of uh, lessening of that? I would have to say at the time I made that decision, I was very relieved. Um, we, had been, we had been doing a, a lot of touring on three, three Atlantic records in uh, four, four years, I think is what we did. Yeah, and by the by the end of the Almudio record, we, you know, when we did Almudio, it was sort of this um, reboot. Um, the Danny Goldberg at Atlantic had sort of he had asked us to come back because we had found a loophole to get off the label, and he was encouraging us to come back. And we really, you know, thought we had made a great record and and did the work uh, for it. And by the end of the last tour, the last leg, you know, because we did the East Coast, the West Coast, and then Europe. By the end of that last show in Europe, I remember it was um, our last show was on July 3rd. My birthday is July 4th, and we're sitting in a cafe in, in Holland, and um, and I was just so tired. We, Jan and I have a son, uh, Matt, who's uh, he was in, he was two years old at that time, um, and uh, I was like, you know, this is hard. This is really hard. If we were if we were really tearing it up commercially. Um, and we had a nanny, but it, it's just like, I don't know how people do it. And, you know, frankly, there aren't that many bands where there's a married couple in the band with a child, a young child, and, had, the, mom's the, and the mom's the drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our son was, was presenting with all these uh, challenges, um, uh, medical challenges, he had seizures. And so we were dealing with all of that and traveling and, and then we had to put off touring we had a big tour coming up that um, was going to be our biggest yet and we had to cancel because we had sort of found this 
discovered what it was, the condition that our son had, and then had to go into the hospital and begin this treatment. And so it was just, it was a lot. It really, when I think back on it, I think, how the bloody hell did we do that? I yeah. mean, we're just, we're, you know, I was really young, I guess was the main reason why. I just not thinking yeah. about it, just like traveling around. I remember being in New York, we were recording El Mudio and, you know, we're at the studio or at the party and I'm having to rush off to the hospital with Matt because he's having seizures, you know, all the time, like doing these crazy things and just taking it in totally in stride somehow. Like, oh, this is just what it's like. I Wait, don't know. You don't think about you it. Make it sound, you make it sound like uh, I stayed at the party. <laughs> I well, I think I you was did. That, you did. <laughs> As a matter of fact. Yeah, we, I remember we would rush to a cab in a cab to the hospital. From yeah, that this, one you you did go. from this listening party. It, it was yeah. just insane. Um, it was it was we we had just spent this amazing month and a half in New York, where Atlantic had us they had us in a a, a, a three story apartment above a pizza a raised pizza in, in uh, Little Italy on Prince and Mott. Yeah, Prince so and Mott. We just had, and it was October, the most beautiful time you could be in New York, I think. And this was the culmination. Everybody, you know, all of our friends, label people, industry people were going to, and we were in the studio and they were going to blast the record and have cocktails. And Matt has this grand mal seizure. Uh. And we're like, um, okay, we gotta go. so this is, rea this is reality. And off to the hospital. And, yeah. Um, so you could see, you could see how it was kind of exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And so to, to sort of make that decision of like, okay, this, I, you, we need to sort of obviously reshuffle our priorities here and um, go to school, you know, take care of your son and, um, and, and move into a different, more, I guess, just a different gear of life. Um, mm -hmm. But you, but you embraced it. I mean, you didn't fight it. You creatively artistically it felt natural it was the right thing to do yeah, yeah well we, we put out a record the next year um <laughs> so there was no there was no desire to stop playing music it was um i mean that said the record is completely different and not very commercial ursa major um, it's called ursa major yeah. looking to put it out there again um but uh um, it was a complete departure from what we had been doing, and and it felt great. It felt just um, amazing. Um, that record made me really happy, and and I was taking classes, and Janet was going. She was off on freakwater tours, and life was normal. Life was good. Um, our son was doing well, staying home, not having six-hour drives. Although he toured he with me. He toured with you, and that was a rough. That was a rough tour with freakwater. Because it was so with Freakwater. Yeah. And it had been a rough tour with Eleventh Dream Day on the El Mudio tour. And <laughs> I don't know why Janet I I uh, I don't know why we I was scared to leave him because I had done another tour where I left him and I was just a wreck. And so I was just like, I'll take him. And he was on this he's on the ketogenic diet, which now is not a very big deal because there's so much stuff, but back in nineteen ninety four or five, whatever it was. It was still a pretty, a, a, a pretty out there treatment for um, seizures and also his underlying condition, which causes the seizures. And so, being uh, being out in the road and having to read the ingredients to every single thing and wait, this 
they don't put the ingredients on mayonnaise in Europe. Is there sugar in here? We can't do this. Just like the constant vigilance of uh, all that, and um, you know, weighing just, everything on the scale. You have to carry a scale because he had four parts fat to one part protein carbohydrate. And I went to math. I went to school in Kentucky, and my math is not great. So <laughs> it's like how great I'm learning. What is going on here? Four to one. So it was it was a lot to ask of my bandmates, and Matt was. Uh, not an easy, uh, beyond just the seizures, he was not easy. He was really in a state of um, just agitation constantly. And sure. so it was, it was rough. It was really rough, culminating in um, uh, me uh, crashing the tour van in Germany and then making some sort of declarative statement on the stage because I was just really out of my mind that I had done this and fuck everyone, I didn't care. <laughs> so it was things had gotten to that point. But we just kept going. Next day, we were just like, all right, that's fine. Another what, show. <laughs> what was your declarative statement you made on stage? I might have smashed your cars. I'm sorry, I can't help it. And then I think I just drank some whiskey or something. It was like... <laughs> Yeah. Fuck all this. I think I said something along those lines. But no, most people were just like, what? what did she say? What did what you say? I don't <laughs> <laughs> and then our tour manager saw the van and was not happy with me. Um, yeah, he was not happy. I was trying to get Matt back to the hotel room, and our particular nanny at that point was not interested in taking him back himself. And so I had to drive the van, and, and I was just. I just got done with sound check. We got to get back, and I was just really out of my head, and in some very tiny village streets of some burg in Germany, and just pretty much took out like three cars in the parking lot of our show. Good God! <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad I wasn't there. Yeah. Bang! 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 I mean, this is before this is before Janet could have taken a photo and just sent it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it, it would have been great Instagram content. I mean, but <laughs> right. Right. No, for her for her to call me for two minutes probably cost twenty dollars to tell me. Yeah, we didn't even talk at that point. No, no, you couldn't. That was not something that was an option very often. I spoke to Kristen Hirsch, and she'd always had her boys with her on on her tours. Um, yeah. And so having having your kid with you is it's kind of a cool experience, I would imagine. I don't know if Matt remembers. Um, you know, yeah. the, I'm sure I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but that's kind of a cool experience. Well, he's toured with us a lot. I mean, it's never like it stopped fundamentally. He started touring with us from the time he was born till, you know, he's gone with us up until his adult years when we've gone out and, and done yeah, he still he, he still goes on tours. Yeah. In, in the States, we had, um, we were inspired by the Meat Puppets and they had a, they had an RV with a trailer and a dog. So we, that's, we replicated that. We, um, we had an RV and a trailer and a dog and our baby. Um, and it was yeah. such a fun way to travel. And we, we, we did a lot of off-road, uh, see the sights kinds of things too, um, which was great fun. Northern California, I still remember um, hitting a dead end somewhere in the Redwoods. Um, in, and we hit a dead end and there was the only thing in front of us was a giant totem pole. Um, which uh and and gary our sound guy and, and who was driving then i was like okay i'm not driving anymore somebody else is gonna have to drive <laughs> it, 
it, it was really adventurous. It was a lot of fun back then. Yeah, Stressful, I, but fun. Yeah. I saw the Meat Puppets in, in 87. <clears throat> I saw them open. I saw Soundgarden open for the Meat Puppets in Berkeley. And I saw the drummer from the Meat Puppets, Derek. I saw him standing outside that RV you're talking about. And I remember thinking, there he is. Like, there's, there's the guy. Um, but that RV was in rough shape. <laughs> it was, it was not, oh, it was in rough shape. All right. Yeah. And uh, I have a funny story. We, we drove, uh, we, were, we had a show, I believe uh, the first one was going to be in Montreal in Canada. And we were With coming them. from the States. Yeah. And so they passed through before we did. And a, a, a touring band of a birds reunion passed through. And then we were the third ones. We got stopped. Now, the meat puppets with their their bongs under the sink, and uh, you know they went through. Uh, you know hippies went through. We we got stopped and had the van just completely dismantled by the the Canadian police. It was, it was very unjust. It's yeah. like those guys with the long hair. You should have stopped them. You really should have. Yeah, they, they, somehow you were the red flag. Right. We were, yeah. Um, the, the clean, yeah. My perception, and, and I like to talk about the future, really, but I, I've always wanted to ask you guys this. My perception, having grown up in the 80s, um, and, and we're about the same age, is that I always felt the gold rush of signing bands like Big Dipper to, to CBS or O Positive to, to CBS and signing you know, Dream Day to Atlantic. I always felt that there was a massive gold rush of getting those bands to major labels, but I didn't know exactly if the major labels knew precisely what to do um, with those bands. Is that, is that perception, did you feel that way? Did you feel that they didn't quite know what to do with you or did you feel um, that it was a pretty good shake? Let, let me give your, your gold rush uh, metaphor some air here. Um, in, instead of going into the river with a pan looking for nuggets, they went in with a bulldozer and scooped up the river and and dumped it and you know and you know sifted through that now i mean it just it didn't uh when we signed with atlantic there was no great belief that any of these bands were going to do anything but bands were doing so well on indie labels and had you know like sst and and you know twin tone that there were they did the thing that major corporations do. They, they corner the market as a safety net. And, um, and so, yeah, they hit gold with Nirvana. Well, Nirvana was... In, in all fairness to some of the people that said, like, Bettina signed us, and she wasn't, you know, the corporate um, shill that was out there trying to, you know, wrangle in every no, single I'm, band. So I do think there was these young people that were all, all of a sudden in these jobs um, and, and they wanted to, to change things and bring in the things that they loved. It's, and that level, I think it was all pretty pure. It's just the marketing level, the, the other levels, I think, where they just had no understanding how, how bands were operating at that level and, and how to um, make them successful. You know, I, we've been talking about this lately and when we were touring in Europe, half the stores didn't carry our record and they wouldn't let us carry it ourselves and sell it at the shows as you couldn't do that that was not allowed so we just it was really hard to to, to um get the records into people's hands uh so you know there was just some real fundamental 
challenges. And, you know, for us, you know, some bands flourish that way. They're super hip and cool. And I think we were just really um, pretty normal, average, not hip and cool people. So it didn't, the copy didn't look as exciting. I mean, we weren't, uh, you know, Sonic Youth or something like that, you know, being super edgy or just like pretty, uh, pretty Midwestern <laughs> friendly folks. And so that the story is not as quite as exciting also. So I think sometimes that's a little harder. Um, we were just, you know, it really was uh, the music and it wasn't anything about the, the coolness, the look or anything like that for us. No. I don't know, Janet, I go, I, I see those old pictures and I, I certainly did not feel hip or cool at the time, but looking back, <laughs> You were very yeah. hip and cool, we, yes, we you were so hip and cool. Looking back, yeah, I was hip and cool back then. <laughs> You're hip and cool. <laughs> but, those, but those, I always thought you guys were hip and cool. Um, yeah, exactly. they, those bands we talked about, I mean, like, Oh Positive did one record. Uh, Rave Ups did two records. Um, you know, you guys did three for Atlantic, three or four? No, nobody has a good story from it. No one has a good story. And, nobody and you, does. Mekons. Mekons. Our story. I feel totally fine about our story. I feel like we got to do these things that we probably wouldn't have done. I got to, you know, ride in a Rolls Royce to a, a photo shoot. I got to decide I didn't like that. I got to be in, you know, teen pop magazines. We got to have some fun dinners. I, I got to experience this side of that thing that I, I, I don't really, I never missed, but I, I think I'm, I'm happy of that journey that we put out those records. Yeah. And that, that we came out the other side and are still putting out records. We so did. We did. We, we still didn't get world. famous from it. But to be honest, I am. I'm pretty happy with that. I would. I am happier with that than if we did because I think we wouldn't be around today if we actually had <laughs> done really well. I think there's a better, better than even chance that things would have collapsed and we would have gone in our different ways had we hit, you know, some huge threshold of, of success. I think. Yeah, and I think. I mean, I think it all ended with. I mean. It, it, I think Atlantic even signed Daniel Johnston, I think at one point, I think he put a record out with them, if I'm not mistaken. And it's sort of like, what, how, that was obviously the Nirvana thing, but it's like, you know, 11th Dream Day, the idea was, I think at the time, and I don't know if this is really true, but sort of like, let's find the next REM, let's get the band that will go from the college ranks into the mainstream. It felt yeah. like that was the that that was the impulse. I may be wrong about that, but did you, yeah. I don't so. I think, yeah, I think it's probably right. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I also think there's a, for- Lemonheads hit it. Lemonheads hit it. Yeah. Well, not, not, a, not, not, a, not a huge amount or anything, you know? I mean, they, they, were, they didn't, I guess, and certainly a lot larger than we did, but they weren't like, well, nobody's like Nirvana territory, but, uh, but I think that um, there's also the mentality of the higher ups that allows the, you know, the, the young scouts out there to do their thing because they figure, you know, if, if they can get us to do a record they're not going to spend much money on it. And they have that record for a long time in case anything else happens. They've got it in the bank. They own it. As much as they can own the chance that something uh, uh, actually ends up making money, they, they have a chance of making money. So. Yeah, yeah. But I remember like with, like with the Beat record, did you, did you ever feel like they don't quite know what to do with a record like this? They don't, they don't quite know how to navigate commercial waters with an, with an album like this or did, or did you just you know I, well okay like like Janet said Bettina Richards uh who runs Thrill Jockey now she was our A&R person she got it obviously yeah she was wonderful she got it but 
you know, when you go in and you shake the hands of everybody, you know, we had a great publicist, but the people that are in the sales department, the, the, um, you know, not to disparage anybody that we met in the sales department, but, <laughs> I, but I'm just saying that the, the gears, the major label gears were, were used to for so long to deal with something else that was based on greasing palms, you know, relationships at, at disco, you know, wherever they, you know, um, I remember we, we met the vice president of Atlantic in, in uh, his office at, uh, uh, in LA and he barely looked up at us. He was on the phone. He was screaming at somebody, get me that Debbie Gibson tape. And you know, like they were worried <laughs> about. Was saying? Oh yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. He said, where's that goddamn that Debbie, Gibson Debbie Gibson tape? <laughs> and, and, um, and you know, it's like Phil Collins and Debbie Gibson. That's, that's the thing that the label cared about. The, the A&R, you know, the, the, the department that we were, in in the corner of the building you know we got we walked past Ahmet's office it was very cool but you know the little corner that was for the uh the bands like us um it was i don't you know i don't think in our three records the label ever really was uh believing in this um i think by the time Mudio came out i think danny goldberg saw um you know what was possible uh but in the 90 and 91, it wasn't happening at that point. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what the replacements or who's to do. Those, those are bands that got signed to majors too around that. Or yeah. a little, they were earlier than us. A little bit earlier, I, yeah. I, I, I really doubt that they have all great things to say about their experiences either. But uh, I don't think the labels knew entirely what to do. No, um, and I think they made excuses for things. I remember being, we were all in the big conference room a long long table and one of the sales after somebody just this young guy and he's talking about how he took the helicopter in you know from wherever he was in Long Island, so like, i don't know to get to the office and then they proceeded so they hit the first single on el mudio was um uh what's the name on el mudio yeah you know the one that uh, the, the one i said make it like, making a look, making make it like a so so we're in there, and this is also at a time where MTV shifting. Everyone's saying rock is dead, rock is right. dead. MTV shifting to something else, and they actually had us in a room and told me the reason that the, the, that that single wasn't doing well is because people just aren't into women singers. Oh. <laughs> people just aren't into women singing right now, so it's just that you're just can't yeah, help little, that. Can a little too early, women. You're, <laughs> the, you're the woman was ninety five, I think. Well, yeah, because a few years later, because El Mudio was out in, what year would that have been? 93. 93. Right. And then yeah. like a year later, it's Liz Fair, it's Alanis Morissette, it's, right? Yeah. People yeah. are very into women singing. Yeah, apparently 93 was a bad year for women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I just I like remember how... that so clearly. Yeah, hey, Janet. The only just, woman you, in the room. And, you, weren't and edgy, it, you weren't edgy enough. You were only writing about murdering your awful husband. I'm just like all I know in this room with these young suits and that's what they say to me. I was like, and I'm just supposed to be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Right. <laughs> I'm, yeah. sorry about, I'm sorry about that. I'm, just, I'm sorry for being a woman. Pull it off, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry for being a woman. I'm sorry for that.
of stepping off that train, the major label train, 
and going back to where you had been, that sort of that sort of um, kind of whiplash for a lot of people, it killed a lot of careers. It, a lot of people were like, it just never was the same after that. It, financially, we owed money or whatever it might have been. Um, but did you find it to be kind of liberating to sort of say like, okay, we did that. Now let's, let's sort of remove those pressures that were there from a corporate standpoint and create more freely? Entirely, yeah. Yeah, but I don't really know. I, I maybe all like so much of my energy was just sort of wrapped up in things like with, with our son stuff and, and but I, it just didn't even really cross my mind that we were gonna we getting off the label and we were lucky they, they you know we didn't carry any debt forward because we'd had it forgiven before we went in to make our uh, to make El Mudio so we didn't have a oh, whole good. lot of debt there but um <clears throat> So there's nothing that really physically happened to us uh, uh, after we left the label. We just didn't have all that fluff around it. And so yeah. we just, I, don't, I just don't even think we ever thought, well, well, well are we going to go on? Are we not going to go on? It's just like, okay, we just make another record. We do a thing. It was yeah. really pretty seamless to me. As I we, were, we were lucky. We, we always got to do exactly what we wanted. We made the records we wanted to on Atlantic, we made the records we wanted to afterwards. There are bands, like you said, that it der derailed them. Bands had records buried on them where they couldn't put them out, mm -hmm. um, where labels buried them and, and uh, bands never got the rights back. Um, and yeah, uh, we were lucky um, in, in what happened to us. We just didn't get like Gonzo famous, boo-hoo, you know? we. We, you know, El Mudio was successful to an extent, not not sales-wise compared to the first two, but, you know, um, we loved it. Our friends loved it. People at concerts loved it. You know, like, we did what we wanted to do, and then the records after that, um, you know, like with the new one, we just, we didn't think twice about having this record that doesn't sound like the last two. It's what is currently coming out of our, uh, our mouths and, and instruments. We, we, in, yeah. in terms of teaching, I'm a teacher as well. And, um, right. you know, and, and a writer and, and someone was saying to me, are you, are you writing? And I thought, when the semester is over, I'll, I'll write, right? Right now I can't, um, there's just no time. Do you feel creatively, do you feel more compartmentalized with the teaching gig where, or do you find that the creativity, you can't schedule it, it just, it just happens when it happens? For both of you, really. Well, I, 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 I compartmentalize things, and um, I also have two kids that are now teenagers. I, you know, when I'm being, when I'm available for my kids, uh, when I'm, you know, working on school, I, I'm not generally too creative, and when I do get creative, it's going to happen in this tsunami, um, like like this material um it all got it started i i got uh, laid off i i was teaching um songwriting at uh, columbia college in chicago um the class fell short of attendance to keep my section going for for that quarter oh no it was for an ensemble i was teaching not songwriting that was going to be in the fall but an ensemble and they canceled the ensemble and it was like the weekend before i was supposed to teach and all of a sudden, I didn't have a job for like the first time in my entire life. And I was pissed. 
and it was January and the kids were back in school and I was alone. I need to be alone to create. And I just started writing a song a day. Uh, lyrics, music, um, recorded on an MTP3 by, by lunchtime every day for two weeks. And that, uh, that got me jump started. But then I'll have months and months where I can't do anything just because of, like you said, you know, um, um, work and, and whatever. Um, uh, I, I've never been somebody that just sat around and uh, every day. Um, if, I, if I pick up my guitar, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll generally come up with an idea and record it. And my phone right now has probably 40 things that I mm. have snippets of. And that if I ever get the time again, I will, I will develop them. But I put them down on things. But to work on them, to write lyrics, that takes solitude for me. I just do not, I don't have much solitude in my life. Your, I need uh, to, your kids I need are how old? Um, they're they're, four, they're uh, turning 15 in a couple of weeks. Um, so they're finally to the age where it's okay. Um, you know, they don't need me. Uh, in, in, as much as they did when they were younger um and uh you know I, I i had trouble just playing music in the house just because uh um nobody wanted to hear it um you know <laughs> people had things you know all this past year everybody was on their their meetings for school and my wife were was working and for this past year of, of lockdown i wasn't i wasn't able to really make music at home period yeah but for you Jenna? Um, well, I am remarkably lazy. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I was just reading a, um, you and Lynn Sally Tillman. Timms. What's that? You and Sally Timms, right? <laughs> I am very lazy. I was, I'm reading an uh, interview with the writer Lynn Tillman and you know, it's about, uh, I, I've been doing a lot of uh, short story writing lately. And so reading a lot about writing, the process of writing. And so I was reading this Lynn Tillman piece on, on writing and, it was so refreshing because she just said, I am so lazy. I can't, I, the idea of having a practice and going in at, you know, 10 until four and writing and, you know, all this sort of idealized notion of what you're supposed to do and having this practice, she says, just as utter bullshit for her. That's not her process at all. And, and it was kind of like, shoo, finally, I, finally I, can, <laughs> I can get rid of that guilt that I just cannot seem to forge a practice for that sort of thing. You know, I, I, uh, uh, our son, um, he writes poetry. He's got a poetry blog and he writes every day. He said, you know, and he just writes really like little short three, four line things. And he has three, four hundred of them on his phone and that we put in the blog occasionally. But he does that every day. And he's always like, mom, you just have to do it. That's what you, you just have to do it. Like, you're, well, you're very right. But I, I work better under a deadline always. So, yeah. um, which... The only deadline during COVID was actual death itself, and it, that wasn't really compelling. <laughs> um, obviously, it's not compelling enough for me. And um, so there wasn't—I I didn't do a whole lot that way. Um, um, my during COVID, you know, my creative process was—it has been writing short stories and and, and practicing um, learning Spanish. Uh, and then we, you know, with the record, I had to do things. Um, I, I promised to come up with some words and things and, and it would be months and months and every week, every couple of weeks, like, okay, you want to go in and sing those words? Oh shit, don't have anything. And then finally, like I was going to go away for a couple of months. And, uh, recently I, I did go away and, and, uh, 
So I had one last shot to get them done. And so it was like an hour before I get in there, you know, it's, it's done, but I, um, I don't know. I, I, I have a lot more time that way than, than Rick does in some regards. Matt, well, I, he still requires a lot of, um, a lot of oversight as an adult even, but he does, uh, live outside of the house. So I'm, I'm here alone, but, um, it's, it's, uh, it's like, it's like those things taunt me. I just see the guitar over there in the corner. And right. Say, don't, don't, don't even look at me. It's just, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I have these, uh, and then I do sit down and I start playing. I was like, Oh, that's it. It's really pleasant. So I don't know, but it's, it's a strange love hate relationship that I have with, um, with making music. I, it's always been there. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And I, I have found for me as a writer, someone asked me what the hardest part is about being a writer. And I thought the hardest part is when you're not able to do it. When I have to go to work and I have to create essays or I have to do, you know, I also teach right. tennis on the side and I have to do that as well. Right. And, um, you know, tennis player too. I have, I have a lot of practicing with that though. There you go. Or in the Bay area, you have to have that side hustle to, you know, so you can actually like, uh, just remain here. Um, <laughs> and so the hardest part is not being able to do it. And I think I'm a very agreeable guy, but when I'm not able to do the thing I want to do creatively, I may not be the most pleasant person to be around. So Rick, for you, like when you couldn't write, but you wanted to write, were you still okay guy to be around or, or were you feel you had to really kind of referee your mood? Oh, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Um, and I've, um, uh, and I'm not very, I'm not very needy either. But uh, um, when I get my time, like we have a, a house uh, in the Indiana dunes that we get away to. Um, where, uh, Janet's got a place there too. And, and, Sometimes I'll just go and, and have uh, the, uh, the weekend to myself and I'll bring my guitar and I need that every once in a while. But um, I, I, I have no, I, I love, uh, I love my family and, and I, I, I love living their lives. Uh, my kids, uh, you know, my daughter's playing basketball and, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I put all my energy there. I'm pretty agreeable. Um, you'd have to ask them though. <laughs> 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 right, right. Have you guys maintained, because it seems like you have, maintained friendships for 40 years with, with other musicians? And did you find that during COVID, you would reach out to them almost instinctively to sort of, because you're going through something similar? Um, and how hard is it to maintain friendships in this, in this industry? Well, you know, I, I think some of my best friends are uh, you know, uh, musicians, um, you know, um, and, and, and they're pretty spread out. Um, I, I have a hard time calling people. I, I'm, I just, I don't have much love for the telephone. Um, and I find, I find it really hard to, you know, it's like by 11 o'clock in the morning, you're like, is today the day I'm going to call this person? You know, I think about you all the time, but I, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to actually pick up a phone or, uh, you know, Doug, who's in our band, and I love him. I hardly ever talk to him. I, but when I see him at, at a show or something, um, even during COVID, we saw each other several times. You know, it's just, you just pick up where you left off. But 
I just got uh, a really dear friend of mine lives in New York. He's a filmmaker and he, he had a 50th birthday. And for his birthday, he sent out boxes of, of uh, this, this incredible thing of art and music. And he gave gifts to his friends. And I haven't seen him in years and we were really close. And, um, and it's like, time doesn't pass. You, when you touch, when you get back in contact, it's like all these, you know, the, the deepness of that relationship just picks up. Um, our musical friends like Yola Tango, um, who we've, we've pretty much came up at the same time and, and Tatum, Taraki and Tim Harris and Josh, you know, we don't see each other much because we don't live in the same cities, but touring brings them around and we, you know, we, and it, you just pick up where you left off and the relationships are, are as strong as ever. It's just, I have trouble on that daily basis of, I, I see Janet more than anybody just because we share a son and we have a, um, we have these houses in, in the dunes and, um, um, but uh, don't really see that many people and it's, uh, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm pretty uh, withdrawn in, in many ways, but. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm far more social. You know, I, I'm always, uh, I, I am not, uh, I'm less even tempered. <laughs> I mean, I'm not like volatile so much, but I'm pretty, uh, uh, my energy level is, is, appears to be more chaotic than Rex, I would say. So, um, you know, I, we're, I, so I socialize a lot. We have a lot of friends. I, I am really close with um, Sally Timms and John Langford and those guys. And so we, you know, Sally, I, we talk all the time. So that, that really didn't disappear so much during that, this time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I've found it hard to stay connected with uh, the musicians that I've made friends with over the years, especially with the, the, the invention of social media, you know, I actually yeah. stay more in touch with them, really. You know, my friends that are in Europe or something, you know, I'm texting them, writing them, or we're chatting in some way, probably uh, more frequently than, than we did bef before social media, obviously, or connect with each other. Um, so I, I think that, that during COVID, I, I, uh, um, I, I sort of retreated a little bit and it was kind of uh, calming for my brain actually, not be so organizing dinners and things and gatherings and blah, 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 just like just closing off a little bit. I'm like, ah, that's, I actually survived this way too and it's a lot less stress. So I, I, I don't know if, uh, if, if that will be a fundamental change going forward or um, if I'll just jump right back on the cycle of, you know, uh, trying to balance lunch dates, dinner dates, blah, 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 getting together for things with people, you know, I, um, I regularly see Jim who's, um, you know, plays with this and so keep connected with all those people, but um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I've known people long enough that I, I don't have to see them all the time. Right. <laughs> I kind of right. know them. And we can just see each other sometimes, and it's good. Can you imagine if you guys were a young band right now who was relying on your music to put groceries on the table? I mean, what a terrifying prospect that would really be. Um, so it's, it's, 
in many ways to be able to be to be able to create outside of that worry, um, whether it's COVID or not, um, must be incredibly um, freeing. Yeah. Well, I think regardless of COVID, to be a young band trying to figure out how to make money in an industry oh. where it's just impossible, <laughs> that's 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 a challenge. I was I was thinking about this like young bands in their early 20s you know that are just starting off i wonder if this year and a half will um if we'll have less because some people just can't weather it and then they just decide you know what i'm gonna go ahead and go to college or i'm gonna go do this or if or if it allows people to have more time to sort of develop who they are musically um in a, in a more idiosyncratic way than having a lot of stuff come at them or something, you know, they can sort of just be alone and, and um, imagine that they're as good as uh, Nirvana or George Jones or whoever it was you want to imagine you, you love. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting. I felt really bad for, uh, I felt bad for the, uh, the band Home, the yeah. um, Chicago band who, they, they had a record come out, I think in April of, 20 and they were poised to take over the world in my opinion that record is phenomenal and they're they're really great musicians and they work so hard you know like i i really admire them on social media because they just do it all so well and i i feel bad for all the bands that that did have to sit it out um for for a year mm -hmm. that were like I, it would be hard just like uh this gap year that nobody asked for yeah um for me, like Janet said, I mean, I feel like my life barely changed um, just because of my lifestyle. But um, um, yeah, I really feel for a lot of people. Well, on an artistic level, it is a potentially extinction level event. Yeah. Uh, right. Because yeah. we don't even know uh, when you can get back in the clubs and play live um, and whether or not you would even feel comfortable doing so as a musician, let alone a fan. Um, and so it's still, uh, you know, a growing concern. I, I, I spoke to the guy from the, um, Peter Milton Walsh from, from the apartments, and he was telling me that he, his tour had been postponed October of 2022. Oh. And, right. And you're sort of looking back and looking ahead and going, that's, you know, that is a long time from now. And, um, and some, some people probably can't sustain that and will have to figure out something else and so maybe when this all returns to normal whatever that may be the playing field might look totally different in terms of who who is on the field which bands may not even be around anymore we don't even know yeah. Yeah. Um, i also am curious to see in 20 years time in a, in a look back period if there's some sort of cohesive sonic theme to uh, uh music that's created during this period. People will be able to look back on it and say, ah, yeah, that's that COVID period sound, you know? Like, I got that. <laughs> right. I just, right. I started wondering if there'll be that. But then there has to be a post-COVID sound. Yeah, that, well, of course, there will be a post-COVID sound. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I mean, <laughs> it's that post-COVID indie rock yeah. sound that they yeah, have. But what a, what a confusing ass year, though. You know, yeah, well, of um, course. With, with COVID, with this, that sort of somber element of shutdown, but then George Floyd and, and you know, and an election year and, and just, uh, it was just uh, really uh, topsy-turvy. 
it's been there's been a lot of highs and lows like the verdict yesterday with Chauvin that was like the biggest high like yeah and that's not you know that's that's a serious sea change right there you know that's huge and that wouldn't have happened without the the terrible shit that you know that uh that occurred and then all of the protests uh uh as a result of that you know so it's just been a time of so much simultaneously shut down but so much simultaneously happening it's a very strange very strange time period that way. um there was there was a writer or a friend that asked me um, you know, so are you going to write about this? It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, can you write? Uh, can you write a record about this time? You know, or maybe it, maybe it was dealing with the Trump years. I think, um, uh, and Super Chunk made an awesome record that was really kind of rage filled with protest. And um, for me, it's just like I don't know. I, I I had no room for art in a lot of ways. There was too much time on Twitter looking at things that I cared about beyond art and, and, uh, and I had trouble doing that. I really have great respect and uh, admiration for the people that did. Um, I wasn't able to respond to it. And with, with COVID um, uh, and, and lockdown and being solitary, I mean, my journaling lasted about six days, I think. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like uh, I, I went into a, sort of a hibernation mode. I slowed my metabolism down. I went for bike rides every day. Um, I ride about eight miles a day. It's not no great shakes, but it got the heart going. And then, and then slow it back down. Make take a couple hours to make dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wonder um, also if that slowed down the art, the or if it slows down. The artistic metabolism to make it more exact almost because you can almost zero in on on what you want to say when you're when you're not frenetic when you're slow when you've slowed it down you have more perspective perhaps that'd be nice that'd be nice if that is the case yeah <laughs> I, I don't is. know if it's true it sounds really good i don't How know if it's it, true. what what about being a writer during a time when people weren't doing much you know i challenged myself to it's interesting you say that because i felt what, the, what I really wanted during this last year was velocity. So I found myself listening to louder music, faster music. It wasn't the time for Nick Drake for mm. me. Um, I didn't want to be so introspective. And I wrote, I think, because I think it maybe magnified the seriousness of what was going on with everything. Um, and I wrote a book in three months that, that is a frenetic comedy. So my, my reaction was to do, was to go the other way. Um, but I certainly understand the impulse to not do that. I, I get both ways, but somehow for me, I was looking for, for, this is a tennis reference, Janet, for you. I was looking for pace. I wanted, I wanted to hit the ball hard. I wasn't looking yeah. for finesse. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure how you, how for you, Janet, did you, the art that you were taking in, was it something you noticed? Mm. No, I don't. I, I honestly, I, I wish I had. I wish I had uh, something as thoughtful to say as you just said. But I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I think that. Uh, I, I, I was trying to look back. I take a. a I, I take a lot of pictures, uh, um, and uh, I, I uh, uh, was trying to look back to see what it was, maybe specifically, you know, that I was focusing on. And, 
I always sort of tend to focus on the um, sort of the, the micro anyway. Everything is always tiny in a way. Yeah. Uh, the outside is sort of gone. So I, I, I think in some ways, uh, and maybe that's in part what, what allowed me over time just to barrel through shit is because I'm not really um, taking in all the extraneous noise so much. I'm sort of in a tiny focus. So no, I don't think it, it changed that much. I, I I I was getting a lot more reading done, but I won't say it was reading of a of a certain nature. Mm. Uh, um, it just was working working towards that. I mean, I, I think in in the um, in the writing that I've been doing, um, I think it's actually tended to be more gentle than I would have uh, imagined in a way. Like it's kind of sweeter in a sense. So maybe there's some, maybe there's a, a, a bit of a reaction to it to just wanting things to have a gentleness to them again a, a little bit. Yeah. And, and I don't mean a gentleness like going back to something. Like <laughs> we, our, our society hasn't been gentle for a very long time, but no. just, um, or, or ever, I guess I should say. But um, just a, a, a gentleness and being very, uh, I don't know, where, where things still have a fair amount of wonder to them or something. Yeah, I guess looking for that is, is been some of it. That's what, you know, part of like exploring a new language, just trying to, to the, the wonder of something new, I guess, is where I've gone. Yeah, I, I found myself listening to the fall all year. I've just been going, I'm like, now is the time to listen to the fall, I think, you know? Um, and, I, right. and I went to- It's always Charles. time to listen to the fall. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, and it's been, it's been really good. So I, I think velocity has been great. But um, I just, you know, I've, I've loved you guys since, since 87. And I mean, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be 51 in a couple of months and I've carried you guys with me, you know, for most of my life. And so it's, I've always wanted to chat with you and I, and, um, and I appreciate you doing this. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so pleased with the new album. And I, you guys, mm -hmm. your, your, your discography is airtight. I mean, there's not one false note. You're one of the few bands I can say that about. Um, and I just admire what you guys do so much. And I, you had such a massive value for me. So I want to, so thank Hi. you for, for being awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know that record doesn't have a lot of velocity, so that you've still managed to uh, to gravitate toward it now. But you know what it is? It's but still the rawness is what I is what I really want, right? And the rawness is there, and I, I um, I'm coming out of the velocity period too. I think. <laughs> okay. Safe landings. I love that conversation. That was so cool. 11th Dream Day. Uh, lovely folks. And uh, the new album, Since Grazed, is out now. I'm told that in the summertime, it'll be out on vinyl. So uh, if you can wait a few months for the, for the physical vinyl iteration, uh, in the meantime, you can satisfy your 11th Dream Day urge by uh, going digital, 
and uh, buying the album, you're going to love it. It is really brilliant. Uh, everything they do is fantastic. And, uh, you know, maybe even go back and maybe there's some stuff you haven't heard by them. Check it all out. It's all great. Uh, 11thdreamday.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with the band, pick up some music. You know, you know how it works. Uh, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. There is a new book, which I will be talking about uh, incessantly very soon. Look forward to that litany. BombshellRadio.com will let you know all of the things that make this radio station tick. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast, or you can go old school and just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. All of them. We're there. If there's one that you find that we're not on, uh, send it my way, and we will make sure to storm that platform and be on there before the end of the day. That's a promise I probably can't keep. The end of the day? Why do I have to set that kind of standard? I don't know. We'll get there as fast as we can. How about that? Do tell your friends about Stereo Embers, the podcast, and subscribe on the platform that feels most comfortable to you. Leave us a rating, maybe a nice comment or two. We would certainly appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. Some great episodes coming up. So uh, if you've just jumped on the Stereo Embers, the podcast boat, wow, you've you've picked a good time. We're going to be piloting this ship into some pretty cool waters. So uh, so stay tuned for that. I'm trying to think how else I can exhaust this nautical metaphor. Let's close the show with a longer listen to A Case to Carry On from 11th Dream Day's new album, Since Grazed. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Tell me that I've been left for dead, but I'm here A case to carry on To join or not to join, I think On the last we sip our drinks and make A case to carry on
Case to carry on.